Good morning, Ottawa. Good afternoon, Malay, and good evening, Auckland. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss a delay in Israel's judicial overhaul and the risky business of China's Belt and Road. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very, very well, Ethan. Yourself? Doing quite well. Thank you very much. So, John, today we're talking once again about the protests against judicial reform in Israel. What's the latest? Yeah, I think it's an important story to cover. But, you know, I think this is actually a story that you've been following even more closely than I have. (laughs) So why don't we reverse roles a little bit and uh, I will ask the questions and you can take the lead. What what do you reckon? Uh, It's not my favorite position to be in, but I'll I'll give it my best shot. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) You're right. I mean, this is this has been one of those stories that I, I, I can't stop following. And it's personal. I lived in Israel for a while. I have tons of family and friends there. So it's really, it's struck a chord with me. Um, but during this conversation, I'll, I'll try to put those personal feelings aside as best I can. Uh, so the news is that on Monday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi, as he's known, announced that he planned to delay his government's judicial overhaul until the Israeli Knesset parliament uh, returns from its Passover break in late April. To be clear here, John, I mean, he didn't say that this coalition was abandoning the proposal, but just delaying it for a few weeks to cool tensions. Uh, I mean, even Netanyahu said in his speech announcing the pause that Israel might be on the brink of a civil war. I mean, that's language that lots of opponents of the legislation have been using. So to hear him say that was fairly remarkable. And yet, again, this is just a delay. Okay, so if I'm honest... I've never been to the region, um, and I often find the politics of Israel, uh, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, the whole the whole thing, I find it quite confusing. It's hard to get a, a handle on what's what in the region, I think, unless you're really kind of paying a lot of attention. So, how how do we get here? What what like where what happened to get to the point of Israeli lawmakers warning of a civil war? In order to answer that question, I'd have to take us back to the. 19th century. So instead, I'll just go back to November of last year when Israel held its fifth election in less than four years. That election ushered in this new, extremely religious and right-wing government made up of some familiar characters from the center-right, like Bibi Netanyahu, who's been prime minister on and off since 1996, and some figures from Israel's political fringes, some really extreme voices. And this government has a long list of priorities. They want to expand settlements in the West Bank. They want to further entrench Judaism into Israeli society. And they, frankly, want to protect Netanyahu, who's being investigated for corruption uh, from criminal prosecution. And they see the Israeli Supreme Court as the primary institution standing in their way. I mean, the Supreme Court is fiercely independent and is seen by people on the religious right as an activist court that has defended the interests of Israel's secular and liberal population. So they want to effectively get rid of the court. Wow. Okay. So how did Israel's more secular and liberal uh, population respond? Not well, John. Not well at all. Uh, I mean, remember, unlike lots of (laughs) religious Israelis, the secular liberal community serves, serves in the military. And they pay six times more in taxes on average than uh, religious Jews. 
let's just let's just be clear. They are the economic engine of the startup nation. But demographics are not on their side. So Israel, Israel's most religious Jews have more than six children per family. Israel's secular Jews have less than two. And those numbers are diverging. Demographics aren't on their side and, and, and neither is time. And they see the Supreme Court as a defender of interests that are increasingly under attack by a, a growing segment of the, of the population. Um, and they see the battle for a, an independent Supreme Court as existential. And they went to incredible lengths to show that. I mean, beyond the months of near nightly protests, lots of reservists in Israel's military refused to show up for service. And on Monday, after Netanyahu fired Israel's defense minister for warning that military abstentions might be a problem for Israeli security, the entire country went on strike. Israeli embassies around the world closed their doors, which I'm sure you would have loved back in the day. Uh, departing flights from the country's main airport were halted. Even all 215 McDonald's locations shut down for the day. And that's what ultimately forced Netanyahu to announce the delay. Yeah, the McDonald's shutdown was the final straw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but jokes aside, like what what took what took BB so long? Like you said, this is, uh, I guess, the most productive part of Israeli society. I'm, I'm kind of shocked by that stat that they pay six times more taxes uh, on average than observant Jews. That's a, that's a wild figure. So what took Netanyahu so long if he kind of must have needed their buy-in to kind of get an overhaul of this magnitude over the line, right? Well, yeah, yeah, he absolutely did need their, their buy-in. Uh, but like I said, five elections in four years. I, I think he thinks, or thought at least, that the groups that make up Israel's opposition are so fractured that he didn't expect the opposition to be so fierce. I mean, he, he thought he could wait it out, and he probably still does. Uh, Bibi is one of the world's savviest political operators. I think he still thinks he'll be able to call for this delay, let tensions cool, and then push the overhaul through when no one's looking. And he might not have a, a choice but to do that. I mean, while while the opposition has been squeezing Netanyahu from one side, the extreme elements in his coalition have been squeezing him from the other side. And on Monday morning, before the announcement, reports were coming out that one of the most extreme members of the coalition, a guy named Itamar Ben-Gavir, was threatening to leave the government unless the judicial overhaul passed. So that was those reports were coming out my morning around midday Israel. And then all of a sudden, at around 6 p.m. local time, those reports changed. Now they were saying that Gavir backed the delay. Oh, yeah. I This was all on Sunday, and I actually went down a, a, a wiki rabbit hole, as, as I, I do from time to time, on this Ben Gavir character. And boy, he's a really extreme guy. Look, I don't want to get sidetracked, but 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 tell me what happened with him. Like, wh wh Why did he choose to eventually back Netanyahu in the delay? Um, and I guess, how did Netanyahu have to promise him stuff to get him to agree to that delay? He did. Um, apparently, Netanyahu promised Ben Gavir, who's uh, the, the coalition's national security minister, that he could form and oversee an Israeli National Guard, which has never existed before, and which human rights groups are calling a personal militia. And as, as you said, John, Ben Gavir is an extreme guy. This is a man who hung up photos uh, in his home of a notorious Jewish terrorist who killed 29 Palestinians about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, actually. This is a, a man who was considered so extreme that he wasn't allowed to serve in the Israeli military, which has mandatory service. And now Netanyahu has promised that he can form a military force under his control. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but what's next? How does this all end? 
Well, and Netanyahu's promised to to spend the next few weeks negotiating with the opposition. It seems like those negotiations have already started. But to tell you the truth, I'm not sure if coalition partners like Ben Gavir, and he's just one of a, a, a number of voices, uh, that probably won't let him actually negotiate, at least not without more and more concessions. So in my mind, this ends one of two ways. Either the government collapses and we see the sixth election in about four years, or they force the legislation through as written. And John, if that happens, it's, it's anyone's guess where the country goes from there. Today's show is sponsored by one of my favorite newsletters, 1440. The team from 1440 monitors scores of news sites to find the stories that matter the most from science and culture to business, politics, even sports. They then pull the most important pieces together into a single digest every weekday morning. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So next up, we'll be discussing a big breaking study uh, about international development finance. Such a fun topic. And this time, I'll be asking the questions. That is a shame. I very much enjoyed being the question master. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, let's get into it. So this is a story, Ethan, about uh, international development and how it gets financed. Um, so if we backtrack a little bit to September 2013, the at the time, fairly new Chinese President Xi Jinping launched the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, or BRI, which was designed kind of as China's answer to the IMF, Bretton Woods, Western-led system of, of international finance that had existed or has existed since the end of World War II. The idea was, and still is, of the BRI to dispense billions, and actually by now I think it's about a, a trillion dollars, uh, in loans to a really wide range of developing countries across the world. Uh, it was originally called the Belt and Road as this idea of linking China to the world via Central Asia, or the road, and uh, the oceans, uh, the belt. Uh, as of today, there are 150 countries involved. So obviously when you have you know 150 countries, which is about three quarters of the countries on the planet, some of them will be extremely creditworthy in, in a Western sense, in that sort of good governance, low corruption, independent judiciary, those kinds of things. Uh, but many of the countries won't be creditworthy at all. And that was the promise of the BRI, that countries could pretty much participate in its lending program regardless of how likely they were to pay back the loans. Seemed like a risky bet on, on China's part. Um, for a long time. And people have kind of been suspicious of the BRI and its motives because of that risk, because of that unlikeliness uh, to get paid back. But a new study has revealed just how risky that bet has been for China. Right. So what did what did that study say? Uh, yeah. Okay. So this is a it's a study that was done by a bunch of economists um, uh, and economics institutes, including the World Bank. Uh, and it showed that between 2000 and 2021, China was forced to deliver about $250 billion in emergency rescue loans to countries that were unable to pay back their debts. And, and the numbers accelerating of, of the, that $240 billion, 104 of it, $104 billion was dispensed between 2019 and the end of 2021. So pretty close to half of those emergency rescue loans came in the last two years of that study. Think about it this way. In 2010, before the BRI started, only 5% of China's overseas loan recipients were 
debt debt distressed, you know, in 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 debt trouble. By 2022, that number had risen to about 60%. Uh, so it's not just China that's suffering the consequences of these risky loans, and I think it's important to mention that. Unlike the IMF, which is you know US led and offers rescue loans with a, a typical interest rate of around two percent, China's rescue loans come attached with a five percent interest rate, uh, so considerably higher. Um, and the infrastructure projects that these loans are funding are often controversial as well in in the local countries due to a range of issues, safety and poor craftsmanship and so on. Um, it, there's one infamous example in Ecuador when a, a $3.4 billion Chinese-built dam had more than 7,000 cracks that the Ecuadorian government might have to pay to fix. So, you know, look, I, don't want, I don't want to suggest that other developments have cracked this code. It's really difficult, but that's that's the situation we're at yeah, with the BRI. I mean, it seems like China wants to be a global superpower, understandably. Uh, and this is one of those hard things that global superpowers have to do. It Everyone wants to be a superpower until they have to do the hard parts. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's right. I, I think many folks' eyes will glaze over it, talk of international financing and development and all that kind of stuff. But it's an important issue when you think about it in the modern context of you know what's going on in Ukraine and, and the devastation that Russia has caused in Ukraine which obviously means that the country is going to need to be rebuilt after the war is over. Uh, who's going to pay for that? And who's going to actually do the construction, the rebuilding of Ukraine? You know, China's going to want to play a big hand in that. We've already seen them kind of make noises about that in, in conversations with, uh, with, with Ukraine and other, and other countries. But so is the West. And like everything these days, that's going to be framed as a geopolitical confrontation and a battle for influence. And I bet that the BRI and its performance is going to be used as evidence that China just isn't good at this stuff. So, you know, everything's everything really in geopolitics is connected. Uh, I wish there was a newsletter and a, uh, a thrice weekly podcast to help explain that very concept. <laughs> but alas, thanks, John. Thanks, Ethan. <laughs> Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. A referendum to accelerate Berlin's climate policies failed on Sunday. The measure would have required the city to reach net zero by 2030, 15 years before the rest of Germany. The ruling junta in Burkina Faso has suspended a French broadcaster, France 24, after the network aired an interview with a local Al-Qaeda leader. The junta expelled the French army last year. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, have you ever seen the infamous statue of football superstar Cristiano Ronaldo? Well, World Cup champion Lionel Messi just had a statue built of him too. And in my opinion, it's not much better. But check out the International Intrigue newsletter to decide for yourself. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.